Hello and welcome to the Ontario Animal Health Network's Veterinary Podcast. This podcast is designed to provide some quick and handy tips for veterinarians on the go. We're going to be chatting with some of Ontario's experts about issues related to practical diagnosis and testing. I'm Melanie Barham, coordinator for the OWEN, and I'm joined today by Dr. Maureen Anderson, large animal internist and animal health and welfare lead at OMAFRA. Uh, Maureen's been heading up the rabies file at OMAFRA and will fill us in on what every veterinarian in Ontario needs to know about one of the oldest diseases in history books. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks, Melanie. It's my pleasure to be here. Can you just run through uh, the mechanism of action, like the, the infection and how it actually affects an animal? It's sort of all to do with, uh, well, so basically when the virus gets inoculated into a person's tissues or an animal's tissues, it first replicates at the site where it's introduced into the body, and from there it actually enters into the nervous system directly. So it actually gets into the nerves and travels via the nerves up into the central nervous system. So that's the brain and the spinal cord. And from there, it will replicate within the the central nervous system, and that's when it starts to affect the neurons, and that's when you end up getting the behavior changes. And the parts of the brain that are most commonly affected are the brain stem, which which controls a lot of very basic functions. So it's not the higher functioning areas of the brain in people that control, you know, language and and detailed things like that. It's it's the, the brain stem itself. And then from there, the virus will replicate and actually move down out through some of the nerves and it will travel via the nerves to the salivary glands and that's when it becomes transmissible to other animals and people. So if an animal has rabies virus in its saliva and it bites a person, then that person will become exposed. Okay, awesome. And is is a bite the only way that you can get rabies virus transmitted to you? Not necessarily. Because the virus is in the saliva, it doesn't need to be inoculated into the tissues via bite. So if there's broken skin, for example, so if a a rabid animal were to lick you and you had uh, open skin from a cut or a scrape or something like that, there is potential for the virus to penetrate into the body that way. Uh, The same thing can happen if it gets onto a mucous membrane. So mouth, nose, eyes are, are a big risk because of course the eyes are very close to the brain already so the virus doesn't have to travel very far in order to get into the central nervous system. Right, I think about that as a previous equine practitioner where we're doing lots of dentals and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. There's saliva and stuff and tooth dust flying around everywhere. Absolutely. And the other risk would be during post-mortem procedures if you're necropsying an animal that has died from rabies and any of the neural tissue would also contain the rabies virus mm-hmm. potentially. So if you were, for example, trying to remove the brain and some of that tissue either splashed or was aerosolized or something like that and got into your eyes or into broken skin, nose, Mm -hmm. mouth, anything like that, that would be a risk as well. Okay. So anytime I get bitten by a patient, which hopefully isn't that often, what should I do as a veterinarian or if my staff gets bitten? So any mammal is potentially capable of, of transmitting rabies. So if an animal has bitten you and it had rabies, then you are potentially exposed. Now, most of your patients hopefully aren't going to have rabies, but because the disease is so deadly, we don't want to take any chances. So according to the legislation in Ontario, anytime a mammal or an animal that's capable of transmitting rabies bites a person, it needs to go under a 10-day observation period. So the animal doesn't need to be euthanized. It doesn't need to go under a strict quarantine, under isolation or anything like that, because again, in most of these cases, the animal isn't rabid. 
the risk assessment is done by a public health inspector, and in most of those cases, the animal would be put under a 10-day observation period. And the idea is if the animal is still clinically normal at the end of those 10 days and hasn't shown any signs of developing rabies, then we know it was not shedding the virus when you were bitten. It doesn't necessarily mean that it won't develop rabies later on, but we know that when that bite occurred, it wasn't shedding rabies. So that's what the 10-day observation clear. is for. And so the person would be in the clear. Now, if the animal can't survive that 10-day observation period for some reason, say it's very sick for another reason, or it was hit by a car and it's, it dies or needs to be euthanized due to its other injuries, then we don't know if it would have made it to those 10 days before developing signs of rabies. And in those cases, that's when public health may recommend testing of that animal to be absolutely sure that it was rabies negative when that bite occurred. Okay. And what about if I've bitten by a large animal patient? So large animal patients, we don't have as much information on rabies incubation and rabies shedding in domestic livestock species as we do in dogs and cats. So dogs and cats, we're very confident in that sort of 10-day interval. For livestock species, it's probably very similar, but because we don't have as much information, that observation period is usually extended up to about 14 days. And after 14 days, you're generally considered probably to be in the clear. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what about in the immediate time right after I'm bitten? Should I, like, I, obviously you'd think, well, you'd want to clean up your wound, but are there any other tips or anything that you should do immediately? The most important thing you can do after you've been bitten is to clean the wound very, very well. The rabies virus is very liable to the environment. It's very susceptible to even just plain soap and water, any kind of uh, antiseptic or anything like that will destroy the virus. So the more you can do to get that contamination out of the wound, the better. But of course, anytime we have a bite, we worry that it's a deep puncture wound and it may be very difficult to get a tiny little bit of virus that's been inoculated deep down into the tissue. So wound care is very important, but it doesn't necessarily negate the risk of rabies from a bite. So don't just clean the wound up and then head on your day and head to the doctors. Well, the first thing you should do is actually contact the public health unit because they're the ones that will do the risk assessment. And again, they take into account several factors, whether you're vaccinated, whether the animal was properly vaccinated, how the bite occurred, was it provoked? Uh, does the animal have a history of biting and aggression? Or did this sort of happen out of the blue? Does the animal have any recent history of exposure to wildlife that may increase its risk of being rabid? And all those things get taken into account. Okay, um, and should you, is it just a local public health unit that you should call? Yes, you should always call your local public health unit. There are 36 in Ontario, and it's really important that uh, all veterinarians should have that number handy somewhere in their clinic. Uh, for cases like that or any other public health issues that may come up because, of course, we're part of the One Health team, so Great it's important tip, yeah. to be in contact with your public health unit. So, Maureen, you mentioned about uh, exposure of rabies virus in the eye. That sounds kind of scary. Can you give me any tips for any, any advice for that? So, the problem with getting rabies virus directly into your eye is the eye is very close to the brain and there's actually no synapses between basically your eye and the rest of the brain. So there's no opportunity for your immune system to basically intercept that virus before it gets to your brain. So preventing exposure via the eyes is extremely important. So if you have a, an animal that could potentially be rabies, even if you don't suspect rabies is the first disease, 
If you're doing a post-mortem, very important to wear proper eye protection in a case like that. Also really important anytime you're doing any sort of oral procedure, so particularly in large animals because of course there's a lot more saliva and that sort of thing kicking around, but also dentistries on small animals and that type of thing. There's lots of reasons you want to be using goggles during procedures like that because there's any number of things you can get into your eyes, but rabies is certainly one of them. And yes, it's very, very low risk because, like I said, the incidence of rabies in Ontario is extremely low at this point. But if you get it in your eyes, that's probably one of the worst ways to get it because you have so little chance to basically intercept that virus before it gets to the central nervous system. So what do I need to know about rabies, titers, and vaccines for my uh, for the people in the veterinary world? So fortunately, most veterinarians and a lot of vet technicians are vaccinated when they're going through school because we do work in a profession where we are at increased risk of exposure to rabies. However, it's not covered by healthcare in Ontario, so there is a cost to it. A lot of the time it's mm -hmm. either rolled into tuition or the university or the college pays for it. But once you're actually out into practice, uh, if somebody needs to be vaccinated for rabies, there is a cost. Uh, it's not inexpensive. It's probably a few hundred dollars and it's, it's two to three shots for pre-exposure vaccination. They generally recommend for people in say the veterinary profession or animal control people uh, that their titers are checked every two years. For lab staff, for example, that are actually handling rabies virus in the lab, they check it more often. But for veterinary professionals and veterinary staff, about every two years. And the titer can be checked for free. You just need to ask your doctor uh, to pull the blood and for the requisition. Okay, perfect, yeah. So what can you tell us about how the rabies testing program has changed in the past few years? So we had quite a dramatic change to the rabies response system in Ontario this past April. On April 1st, 2014, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which has been responsible for uh, rabies response and rabies testing for the last several decades, uh, basically uh, got out of that part of the program for uh, due to budget issues. And they still do the testing and they are still responsible for reporting positive rabies cases to the World Animal Health Organization, the OIE. However, they no longer do the risk assessments at the sort of primary level and they will no longer go out to collect rabies samples okay. for submission and testing. So the key at this point is each of the provinces has been essentially this responsibility has been shifted down to each of the individual provinces and our task is to get whatever samples need to be tested to the lab once they're there they can still be tested but that of course has prevent, presented quite a challenge because the provinces didn't have their own infrastructure for this we relied on the federal CFIA agency for this for so long right so you guys being a mapper so OMAFRA has basically filled in, we've filled in a very specific role. On the public health side, like we discussed before, bites to people and potential exposures to people, whether that's from a domestic animal or whether it's from a wild animal, those are still supposed to be reported to the public health units. Okay. And the public health units do the risk assessment, and if they decide there is a risk of rabies exposure, then at that point under the old system, they would have 
called CFIA and said, mm -hmm. we have an animal that needs to be tested. Can you come and pick it up? So it's been very challenging for the public health system in particular to replace that system because public health inspectors aren't veterinarians. They're not used to handling right, yeah. animals. They're not used to taking samples for testing or shipping biological samples or anything like that. So we have helped them out with some of that and we've actually even helped to uh, train some of the public health units to awesome. submit small samples, for example, bats that are really easy because you basically send the whole bat in for testing. So public health worked very hard on that and we've done everything we can basically to help train them into that sort of transition system, but they will have a new system coming in to replace what the CFIA used to do for them. Okay. On the veterinary side, uh, we still had, to, we were basically left to fill the gap for the domestic animal exposures. So say the dog or the cat that has gotten into a fight with a skunk or a raccoon or a bat or something like that. So there's no human exposure in that case. But CFIA is not doing that risk assessment anymore. So now OMAFRA has taken over doing those risk assessments. And what we have done since April is we've been handling these on a case-by-case -case basis because, like I said, we didn't have any infrastructure in place to begin with to deal with these samples. And we want to get veterinarians more involved in this. This is a really important public health issue. Rabies is absolutely a public health issue, but it's one where veterinarians have the opportunity to get involved and really contribute to controlling it. So. What happens now is if there's a domestic animal exposure, it gets reported into OMAFRA and we do the risk assessment. And again, we look at things, what kind of animal was it that did the biting? What kind of animal was bitten? Was it vaccinated? What area was it in? Uh, was the attack provoked? How much uh, broken skin was there? Was there actually a bite or was it just you know, touching and that sort of thing, which wouldn't be as much of a risk for rabies exposure. And we go through our full risk assessment and then we make the decision as to whether or not the offending animal needs to be tested or if the animal that did the biting or the, the wildlife or what have you is not available for testing, then we decide whether or not the domestic animal needs to be either observed or put under confinement mm -hmm. to watch it in case it does develop signs of rabies. Okay. I like how you said it's just not available for testing, like they're on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> not available for testing, which means a wild animal that ran off or the sample was um, decomposed or something like that and it just couldn't be tested. But yes, unavailable. Unavailable. I was busy. Um, okay, so then what about the um, what about the U.S. border and stuff like that and the um, and MNR's um, responsibility? So the MNR responsibility has remained largely the same because they've always been responsible for wildlife rabies and okay. the MNR, which is actually now the MNR F, F they've yeah. added forestry. Uh, they're the reason that we have managed to decrease the incidence of terrestrial rabies in Ontario by 99%, and that was largely due to their wildlife baiting program that they started in 1989 and just dramatically dropped the numbers. Our main concern used to be uh, foxes and skunks uh, carrying fox strain rabies, and then we had an outbreak of raccoon rabies in about the mid-2000s. So now the, the baiting program will actually target all three of those species. But at this point, our main concern is encroachment of rabies basically across the U.S. border to the south of us. That's where our, our sort of biggest threat is uh, in terms of raccoon rabies especially because they do still have that very much in New York State. 
And so the MNR has continued its baiting program. It's no longer across Ontario. It's concentrated in those highest risk areas. So Niagara especially, mm -hmm. and along the St. Lawrence River, in areas where we worry about incursions of raccoon rabies across the border. Right. The other risk we have is still, there's definitely still rabies up in northern Ontario, but because it's so sparsely populated and because we don't do a lot of testing up there, we don't have a really good idea of how much is up there, but we can certainly have animals coming down from northern Ontario, which could potentially encroach into the more populated areas sure. further south. So we always have to remain vigilant about those. And of course, the other risk is from bats. And bats, unfortunately, we haven't found a good way to bait because they eat insects and not, yeah, not wax baits true. that yeah. we can drop on the ground. Exactly, <laughs> so. Gotcha. So as a veterinarian in Ontario, what do I need to know about my role in the new program if I'm a private practice veterinarian? So as a private practice vet, uh, you need to know that if one of your clients comes in and reports that their animal may have been exposed to another animal, usually wildlife, that may be carrying rabies, particularly a rabies vector, if they're, or rather a rabies reservoir species, if there is a risk that there has been transmission, then those are the cases that we would like to have reported into OMAFRA. And then we will work with the private veterinarian, you the private veterinarian, to go through the risk assessment together mm -hmm. so that we can get private vets used to doing these risk assessments as well. Because for you know 40 plus years, it's been rabies, call CFIA. And we're not we're not well practiced. Everybody knows about rabies, but we're not well practiced in doing these risk evaluations. So we'll but you work. You guys at Omafra are. We now. are absolutely we are. <laughs> so we will actually work with the private veterinarians, go through the risk assessment, and decide whether or not the animal needs to be tested. Right. If the animal does need to be tested, because we don't have field offices like the CFIA did, we can't you know, send out a veterinarian to go and collect that sample. But you're right there and you've you've often got the domestic animal and a lot of the time that client will bring in, you know, the wildlife or what have mm -hmm. you. And your role would be voluntary um, to help us collect that sample and get it submitted to the lab. And we provide complete instructions. Uh, we pay for all of the shipping. The test is paid for. It doesn't cost the clinic anything. And OMAF will actually uh, compensate the clinic for their time as well for helping us out. Well, that sounds pretty awesome, aside from having to take off the head off the man. And some people do, I can understand why some people sort of balk at the idea of removing a head from an animal, but when you think about it, it's not really anymore and in a lot of ways a lot less gruesome than what we do for a, a typical post-mortem procedure, which right. we're all trained to do and it's part of doing diagnostic and diagnostics and it's part of being a veterinarian. So like I said, if it needs to be done, it is voluntary. If somebody is really not comfortable with it, nobody is forced to do it. Mm -hmm. But we're happy to walk you through it in order to get these animals tested and determine that they are either rabies positive or rabies negative. Right. It is nice that there's lots of instructions and I, I think I remember you saying that you have a video coming out, right? About it? So we do have some instructional videos. Uh, if somebody needs to do uh, take a sample, either a head or um, removing a brain, which is what's required if it's a large animal species, because obviously 
we don't want to be shipping a 50-pound cow's head or a horse's <laughs> head across the province. So in those cases, we do need a, a smaller sample, and we, we often do ask that the brain be removed. Okay. Um, and again, there are multiple ways to go about this. A lot of the time, especially large animals, they get submitted to a lab, like the Animal Health Laboratory, yes. for a full postmortem and that sort of thing, in which case the lab can very easily get us the sample. If it's being done in the field, though, uh, we do occasionally need practitioners to help us get those samples right. out. And what if the owner doesn't want that to happen to their animal, like um, if you're if you're thinking of a horse who's a pet, mm -hmm. um, what if the owner doesn't want to see that happen on their property? Well, the options are to transport the horse to another location and have the sample taken there. So like I said, either, either to a lab or somewhere else. Uh, the part that the owner needs to realize is that if that horse is not tested and there is a valid risk that it could have been rabid, Oftentimes, the owner may have been exposed to that horse if the owner has had their hands in the horse's mouth yeah. or had contact with the saliva, their kids, uh, other horses on the property, other animals on the property, dogs, cats, that sort of thing in the barn, that sort of stuff. So all be if, it's, if it's not tested, we have to assume that the horse was positive and then people need to be treated, which means getting post-exposure treatment, uh, which is a series of vaccines and antibody and the animals that were potentially exposed need to be quarantined for anywhere from 45 days to six months. So if I have a rabies suspect animal or a neurologic animal that I euthanize on farm um, and I do end up sending it for sampling or I'm thinking about that or I need to, then what do we need to know about what to do with the, the body? So if the brain and or head has been sent for testing, the rest of the animal needs to be held, and it can't go to it can't go to rendering, it can't go to dead stock because it's potentially contaminated with a zoonotic virus, like rabies or like rabies, maybe Tripoli or something like or that, or West Nile, or something those. else in cows and sheep and goats. Absolutely. So, the animal basically needs to be held until the rabies test comes back, and if it's negative, it can be disposed of as per usual. If the test is sent off, uh, particularly if it's during the week and that sort of thing, we can usually get results back within 24, 48 hours of when the sample is sent off, which is not too onerous if you have to have the animal out depending on the time of year. If it's the middle of the summer and it's really hot, that, or the living situation, yeah, you know, that, depending on the optics of that That could be very difficult to deal with. Yeah. The ideal way to handle it, if it's possible, if you're close to a, a veterinary diagnostic lab like the AHL in Guelph or the AHL in Campbell is to have the entire carcass sent there. And that's really important for a number of reasons. A, they can deal with disposal more easily and they can also do a full postpartum and they can rule out other diseases because it's important to know for surveillance and what's in your area in terms of, you know, have we had a, a horse that was positive for Tripoli or West Nile or was it rabies? That's important stuff to know for the other animals left on the farm. So if sending it to the lab is an option, that's usually my first choice because we'll get the best information out of it and it minimizes the amount that the owner or you as the veterinarian will have to deal with on certainly farm. seems like a cleaner option anyways and certainly maybe a little bit a little bit nicer for the owner, especially if it's a pet animal or not you know, if we're dealing with a food animal it might be a little different, but still. Absolutely. Yeah. Now if 
sending it to the lab was not an option. If you can get the sample sent off for rabies testing, then the rest of the carcass normally can be buried on farm as according to the regulations for on-farm burial. Uh, but like I said, that's sometimes a lot for people to deal with, particularly after the animal has been sampled. Right, yeah. Um, so where can I find out more general, where, do, where can practitioners find out more general information? Is there a site that they can send their clients to or a site that they should have bookmarked on their uh, computer? So there are a number of different sites currently that have information on rabies. One of the best sites is actually www.ontario.ca slash environment dash and dash energy slash rabies. And uh, this was a site that was actually set up by the MNRF. And it has an excellent question and answer sheet about sort of all things rabies in Ontario. There are also a couple of sites, on, or rather a couple of pages on the OMAFRA site uh, that describe signs of rabies in livestock, for example, uh, and one that's specific to horses. Uh, and there's also some uh, non-government sites, for example, the Worms and Germs blog site, which is uh, connected to the University of Guelph and the OEC site. You can access it via those. Uh, and it includes lots of posts on rabies, not only in large animals and small animals. Uh, we talk about vaccines, and there's also a great info sheet for owners on the resources page of that website. Okay. As the rabies response system continues to evolve, particularly from OMAFRA's viewpoint, we are hoping to put together an additional site that will have more resources and sort of all the instructional materials and information and contact numbers and that sort of thing for practitioners, which should be a very ready, quick access uh, and quick reference for veterinarians. And we're hoping to have that set up uh, sometime Super. in the near future as well. Super. So when we'll post all of these websites together with our podcast posting as well, so that people can uh, people can access that. Perfect. Um, so I know that things are a little bit different as far as the confinement and ex things when it's an exposure of a large animal. So can you just run through what would happen if we had exposure for a large animal? So exposure for a large animal isn't much different actually from a domestic animal. The major thing that uh, that varies is how long the confinement period is for livestock. Based on the, the data that's available from studies and also based on you know 40 plus years of experience with CFIA, livestock will generally develop signs of rabies sooner compared to dogs and cats. So dogs and cats, the incubation period can be six months uh, and that's normally what we set our confinement period at for animals that are unvaccinated if they're exposed. In very, very rare cases, there have been reports of animals where the incubation period has been even longer, but those are really the, the outliers. So we're very comfortable with that six-month period. For livestock, the confinement period is actually shorter because they generally develop signs sooner. So it's anywhere from 40 to 60 days. So we go through a very similar risk assessment for a large animal exposure. What kind of animal did the biting? Was the animal vaccinated? Uh, what kind of exposure was it? Was it a bite? Was it a scratch? Was it a provoked attack? Uh, or did, was the animal acting abnormally aggressive and sort of came out of the blue at the horse or the cow or what have you? Was it an animal that was in a herd or was it an animal outside the herd? So for example, did you diagnose rabies in a cow that was a member of a herd 
or was there a rabid skunk that went through a dairy herd? So that would right. be an animal external to the herd. And all of those factors come into play when we're deciding what the, the risk assessment. Yeah, okay. into the risk assessment and come into play when deciding what the confinement period will be for the remaining animals. Of course, ideally, we're able to test the offending animal. Mm -hmm. And if it comes back negative, then we don't need to do any confinement periods. Right. Uh, but if it's positive or can't be tested or is unavailable because it's on vacation, <laughs> then <laughs> then then that's when we need to uh, consider doing those confinement periods okay. for again public and animal health. So just to recap, um, if we have a person that's bitten or exposed, we call public health. Absolutely. If we have just an animal to animal exposure, then we call them out So I'll qualify that an animal to animal exposure that could result in rabies transmission. Right. So we don't consider, for example, dog versus dog. Yeah in Ontario, even if, the, even if the dogs may not be fully vaccinated, we're talking about two domestic animals, unless one of them is actually showing clinical abnormalities that could be okay. consistent with rabies, we would not consider that a high-risk situation. So we're normally talking about a domestic animal versus a wild animal, mm -hmm. or we're talking about a domestic animal that has actually developed neurologic signs that could be consistent with rabies. So example, a dog that lives in a house with three other cats. The cats could potentially be exposed. But in most of those cases, if a domestic animal has signs, there's usually a person associated with that animal, okay. in which case public health gets the call first. Okay, gotcha. So really, domestic animal with neurologic or symptomatic animal, then that's when you call them out or any kind of weird situation like that. Absolutely. And if you are talking to your clients about um, the risk of not vaccinating, they could be looking at um, they could be looking at confinement of their animal for quite some time. Absolutely, and I can't tell you how many calls we get about a cat that finds a bat in the house and the person says, my cat's not vaccinated for rabies because it's an indoor-only cat and I never thought it would be in contact with wildlife. Right. But it happens. Cats get out, even, even indoor cats sometimes will get out. Bats can get into all kinds of houses, even middle of Toronto in a high-rise building, bats can get into those apartments. They're right. They are they are everywhere and like I said it's one of the it's the only species that we can't really bait and we haven't been able to do anything about the prevalence. So it's a lot of in the bat population as we And it's also rabies vaccination is a regulation in Ontario in thirty one out of the thirty six health units, so all of the southern health units, you are required by law to have your animal up to date on its rabies vaccine. There are five health units that require it for cattle and sheep and horses, depending. Uh, but it's only if the animal is going to be in contact with people other than its primary caretakers. Okay. So most cattle herds, for example, don't require it. That yeah. being said, there are farmers out there that have been burned by having rabies cases in their herds, and they do vaccinate for it. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Thanks for listening to the Ontario Animal Health Network podcast for veterinarians. Many thanks to Maureen Anderson for joining us, and tune in next time for more interesting tidbits for practitioners. More information about Owen can be found by Googling Disease Surveillance Plan, OMAFRA. I'm Melanie Barham, Owen Net Coordinator. Have a great day.